Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of John, chapter 20? Yes, I said chapter 20. (laughs) We're starting our new expositional series through the Gospel of John called Believe. And you'll see why we're calling it that today. That word is going to come up again and again. And... um, You know, we're starting in chapter 20. Maybe this could be an encouragement to anyone who thinks that we take far too long to preach through books of the Bible. So we're already at chapter 20. So for those of you who, that that would maybe be appreciated by some people. Um, Well, actually, that's not why we're starting there. Um, We're still going to methodically and joyfully unpack the, the gospel of John chapter by chapter. But we're starting in chapter 20 because that's where we find the reason and purpose as to why God gave us this treasured book in the first place. So can we go there? Can we get our nose and our eyes in the book and discover afresh why God gave this book to sit on your laps, but even more, to be hidden in your heart until he comes again. Listen to the word of the Lord, the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, life-giving, heart-transforming word of God. John 20, starting in verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other, other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, Lord, simple prayer this morning. Could you make the purpose of this book the experience of our lives? We want to grow stronger in our belief of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. We want to grow in our experience of life in his name and all that that would involve, both in ministry and mission, for the glory of God and for the godly good and joy of this church family. So thy kingdom come, Lord, and thy will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, about 37 years ago, I became something of a gemologist. Some of you are going to go, I I don't even know that he knew that word. I didn't didn't either. I had to look it up. But uh, even though I was working for Shell Oil at the time and my college education was in human resource management, I embarked in the study of diamonds. Do you know why? (laughs) Because... I was in love. That's why I was in love with, and still am, by the way. I was in love with Jan, Jan Marie Van McCann. And of course, we all know if anyone can, Jan McCann. So anyway, but well, let's keep going. That's, that's why I became a gemologist. It had come time to propose, and I wanted to do my best, you guys, in giving her an engagement ring that expressed the depth of my love and my commitment to her. That's all true. And so I went to New Orleans Diamond Wholesalers, which is still a business, ongoing business in New Orleans, 
to find the magnum opus <laughs> of an expression of my love. And the employee asked, what, <laughs> what kind of diamond are you looking for? And my brilliant answer was, a pretty one. <laughs> a pretty one. That's what I said. And I'm pretty sure that gave me away as not knowing anything about what I was doing. And so he quickly enrolled me in a gemology class for dummies. That's really kind of what it was. I was just to discover, this was a good class, what I was missing in regard to my understanding of a diamond. I was missing out. I just saw this little thing that shined pretty. Oh my goodness, there's so much more to a diamond than that. I learned about the cut of a diamond. I learned about the clarity of a diamond. I learned about the color of a diamond. And I learned about the carrots in a diamond. Actually, I learned about one more C word also. And it was the crisis that my checkbook felt when, when I started thinking about how much I was going to have to spend on this diamond. But babe, it was totally worth it. It was worth every penny. Needless, needless to say, I was, I was compelled by the beauty that I discovered in the many facets of a diamond. And I wanted to share that beauty. Isn't it amazing when you find beauty, you tend to want to share it? I wanted to share that beauty with my beloved bride. But I got to tell you, as time has gone on, I have not been the devoted gemologist that I was 37 years ago. Diamonds have gone back to the category of, that's pretty to me. I'm familiar with them, but their beauty doesn't compel and motivate me like they once did. I, I'm concerned that the experience of my becoming merely familiar with something that once used to fascinate and can compel me can actually become the way we experience the Word of God. There was a time that I, I that, that we maybe, this maybe applies to somebody here. There was a time that maybe we longed to see a new facet about the person and work of Christ in Scripture. And we were compelled and fascinated and motivated by the beauty we saw in Christ. Only, but you know, then life got busy. Maybe, maybe children started to be born. Maybe two jobs had to be taken. Maybe a health issue. There's so many things that can be involved. And, and we eventually back away from our study of Jesus, the diamond of all diamonds. And when we've done that, we, we tend to move into a category uh, that I would call being just merely familiar with Jesus. Kind of like I'm familiar with a diamond but I'm not motivated and moved and my life is not built around the beauty of a diamond. And sometimes that happens to me in my walk with Jesus. He's still someone we admire, we acknowledge, and would even say is beautiful. But our day-to-day -day passions and devotion have been captured by other things that we're deeming more important or the, or the payback comes quicker. They say that familiarity breeds contempt. I, I would say that in the case of a Christian who's become merely familiar with Christ and his gospels, I think familiarity breeds apathy, not contempt. I think familiarity breeds some arrogance because mere knowledge about the Bible puffs us up in pride. 
I think familiarity breeds this sort of spiritual amnesia because we become hearers of the word and not doers of the word. And we forget Christ. And, and we forget who we are in Christ for sure. Familiarity allows us to think that God and his word somehow revolve around us. That's what, ha- it just happens, you guys. When we're just becoming familiar and knowing about the Bible and not really, not really reveling in the, in the God of the Bible and the Christ of the Bible, I think, I think there's this subtle thing that happens to us. Why, that's why fellowship is so important. We need people to help us with our blind spots. It's just so easy to start to think that, that God and his word revolve around me and my desires rather than me and my desires revolving around God and his word. And so when I come to you this morning as one of your pastors, I'm sobered by the study of the gospel of John because I'm concerned that some of us might embark on this study thinking, oh, John, I'm already familiar with that book. That's dangerous. If that's you, that's, that could be spiritually dangerous for you to think, I already, I hope you know something. I hope you love and cherish this book. But if, you, if you're kind of checking out That's dangerous because you think you already are familiar with it. And you've decided that familiarity is enough. I've just described Midland, Texas. Midland, Texas, the atmosphere of Midland. Thank God for the gospel Center churches, our brother, our sister churches in town. Thank God for brother pastors that are boldly proclaiming the gospel of grace. Oh, but precious ones, we live in a town that's very religious and counts familiarity with Jesus as enough. Well, I'm sober about that. Oh, but I am overwhelmingly excited to start this study with you because of a longing to see Jesus more clearly with you, a longing to love him more dearly with you, a longing to serve him more devotedly with you, a longing to experience life and mission in Jesus' name with you. Oh, I'm, I'm excited about that. And when John speaks of believing, he is speaking of embracing Christ for all that he is presently. Not your memory of it, but presently embracing Jesus for all he is. That's believing. It's not just acknowledging the existence of someone. It's embracing that someone for all that he is. It's trusting that someone, that Christ, for all that he has done and continues to do and obeying Christ and seeking to fulfill the mission he began. I'm looking forward to this, and I hope you are too. Listen, Revelation taught us that for all eternity, we will be learning more and more about Christ and his beauty. And we will know more and more about him. And the more we know about him, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more we're going to want to know more about him. I have great news for you. That's not just for the day you die and beyond. That's not just when Jesus comes back to take us home. 
That's not just for them. Did you know? Do you remember? Revelation was talking about the tree of life that was actually groves of trees on either side of the river of life and 12 fruits and, and they were never, they're never out of season. They're always satisfying. They just always taste better. And we're going to get to know him better and better and better. Guess what? The beauty of the age to come breaks into our lives whenever we open this book. You guys, we don't have to settle with the familiar Jesus. Oh, say amen. Amen. You guys, we get to grow in knowing him. Not like we will in heaven. There'll be much clearer day to come, and I'm looking forward to that clearer day. But every day we turn to the water of the word. He clears our graying eyes, our muddied eyes, our dusty eyes to see and behold Jesus more clearly and love him more dearly. Oh, I'm looking forward to this book and I hope you are too. I'm so thankful that that in so many ways, God allows the, the power of the age to come to break into our present age. And he does it wonderfully through the word, through the word. And I got to tell you that this text, I hope you've already noticed this. This is a matter of life and death. What you are actively believing is either bringing you into a greater experience and delight in the life of Christ or, or it's bringing you into an experience of greater despair in believing that life can be found outside of Christ or worse, in addition to Christ. What you believe is taking you somewhere. I don't know that people recognize that. What you believe is taking you somewhere. What you believe is drawing you somewhere. What you believe may be pulling you somewhere. Either further into life or further into death. Isn't that what our text is talking about? that you might know him and believe him and experience life in his name. That's where he wants to take us. This is not first and foremost a book about what we're to do. This is first and foremost a book about believing, about believing who he is and what he's done for us. And oh, how I'm praying that every sermon we preach will feel like the text is taking you by the hand I'm going to come down real quick. Sweetheart, can I just use you for an example? Can I use your precious hand of marriage here? Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm praying for all of us. That the text of God's word, that the preaching of God's word will like be taking your hand and drawing and putting your hand to experience more fully and firmly holding the hand of Jesus. Oh, I want that for our, these sermons. How I long, would you pray that that happened and that that this text would captivate your hearts and that you would experience not just the, by the way, Jesus never lets go of our hand. Isn't that good? But isn't it wonderful that he allows us to experience an ever, ever strengthening grip of his grace in our lives? You know, it's just so good. And that we would experience in every sermon, and not just in the sermons, but in, in your study of the word. Would you, would you read through the book of John yourselves? And that you would experience your heart being drawn to his heart. And his heart actually becoming more near and dear to your heart. And that all of our hearts would be more like his. Oh, 
I think that's the intention of the gospel of John. And so that's why we get to our main point this morning. It's a longer introduction, but I'm gonna, there's some flyby stuff here, so don't worry. Um, the main point this morning is that God has given us, the, I'm just using the text, God has given us the gospel of John as a book of evidence. That's not all it is, but it is a book of evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and calls us to believe in him so that we may experience life in his name. So let's unpack this. John, first point, John is a book of evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the Gospels are not autobiographies. Not every detail is recorded in the Gospels about Jesus. Almost half of the Gospel of John is his last week. Almost half is that. So he's not recording everything. He doesn't intend to. The, the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospel, we'll talk about that in a minute. They don't, they don't intend to record everything. John, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is focusing on certain and specific things about who Jesus is and what he taught and what he did because he wants to understand something very specific about Jesus and he wants us to experience something very specific about Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And those who believe in him will have life in his name. There's the mission of this. The Gospel of John lacks many things that the synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic, just two words, optic to see, S-Y-N, the word S-Y-N is together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot in common. So they just they kind of put those as what they call synoptic because they have, they're seen together. There's a lot of, of similar stories in those, in those books. And some of those are the nativity story, the temptation by Satan in the wilderness, the parables, a lot of teaching of the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discord, a detailed account of the Lord's Supper, on the other hand, John includes things that the Synoptic Gospels lack. The wedding at Cana, the conversation with Nicodemus about being born again, the woman at the well, the high priestly prayer in John 17, the I am sayings of Jesus, the farewell discourse, and how Jesus fulfills the Jewish festivals, how Jesus is the better Moses, how Jesus is the better David, and how Jesus is the better temple. Oh, is it so much we're going to enjoy and be blessed by? Oh, John includes many texts on the person and work of the Holy Spirit as well. And isn't that awesome in, in how timely this is for us coming off of our continuation, continuationism weekender? So God's going to continue to draw our hearts just about the person and work and gifts of the Holy Spirit, even as we study the book of John. So kind of you, Lord. The Gospels complement one another. They, they, they speak of one diamond, right? They speak of the diamond of Christ, who has so many lovely facets. So in verse 30, that's why we see it. Verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that were not written in this book. They were written in Matthew, Mark, Luke. But verse 31 says, but these were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm using repetition. <laughs> I'm using repetition, not reputation. I'm using repetition intentionally today. So, so he talks about signs. So let's, let's us talk about signs. Let's study for a few minutes the signs. What are the signs that, that John is talking about here? Well, there were many of them. We know that. 
But the Holy Spirit has called him to highlight what the theologians over the years have concluded is really seven specific signs. They're they're public actions of Jesus. The text itself refers to them as signs. So we're not pulling stuff out of a hat here. Um, And they point away from themselves. You know, that's that's why people chasing signs and wonders, it's like, oh, hello. That would be like going and seeing the that I've got 300 miles to go till Dallas and I just hug the sign. I don't want to hug the sign, I want to hug Dallas. I want to hug the people in Dallas, my kids and my grandkids. That's who I want to, I want to hug. The sign, the sign gets our attention. It gives us some direction. Sometimes the sign can give us some direction, but it points away to, from itself to something better. And that's what these signs are being talked about here. These signs point away from themselves to Jesus Christ. And what do we see about Jesus Christ? He is the glory of God incarnate. And we're going to see it again and again, the glory of God being revealed in Jesus. And these signs also authenticate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so that's why this, this, the, the, the text just keeps rising back up to the surface. So let's look at the signs real quickly. Um, seven of them, and I'm, I'm maybe cheating here. I'm, I'm no theologian for sure, and, um, and other theologians may roll in their grave because of what I'm about to do. It's not that bad. Um, seven signs. <laughs> so here we go. This, just follow in your notes with me. John 2, 1 through 11, Jesus turns the water into wine. Jesus means he's the Messiah who inaugurates the new covenant, and he brings great joy with him. The joy of salvation, the joy of reconciliation with God. Not to mention, he's going to host his own wedding feast for his bride when he comes back again. We studied that, didn't we? John 2, verses 12 through 17. This is where I'm, I'm combining this sign with the greatest sign of all, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. Because you're going to see, you're going to see why. So this is, this is um, chapter 2, but it's also referencing Jesus being resurrected in chapter 20. Jesus is cleansing the temple in this passage. He's the suffering servant who himself is the better temple. Remember what Jesus said. Destroy this temple and in how many days? Three days. I'm going to raise it back up again. And he spoke of that in regard to his life. His sacrificial life on the cross paying the punishment our sin deserved. Our sins deserved. So this this would confirm that Jesus and his sacrifice That's the perfect place for God and man to meet. Perfect place for God and man to meet is not Sovereign Grace Church, 2901 West Kansas. Perfect place to meet is not any denomination or religion. We gather because of the perfect place, and his name is Jesus. He is the perfect temple. He is that perfect meeting place where we can have fellowship with God. Having sins been forgiven, righteousness been reckoned, adoption as sons and daughters. Oh, what a place. What a place. I forget, I don't know, I forget that. I forget that every step I take, I'm already in my place. I'm already, I'm already with Jesus. I'm already in the best place I could be in his love. I hope you'll remember that too. 
John 4, 46 through 54, Jesus heals a government official's son just by his word. He doesn't even go and lay hands on him. And that's reminding us that the word of God, Jesus' word gives life. It's the word of his power. And that reminds us of the greatest power we'll ever tell anyone is the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Precious ones, let's never grow weary of speaking the truth of the gospel to all that we know and meet. Jesus heals, uh, he heals a paralytic, and that's by the, the pool of Bethesda. Jesus is the son of God who makes people spiritually whole through forgiveness of sins, through Christ. He's being counted as, as being, the wholeness is forgiveness, being counted as righteous, being adopted. All this is wholeness for our souls, being delighted in by God in the same way that he delights in Jesus. Have you ever thought of this verse this way? When, 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 when the voice is heard from heaven and God says, Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Have you ever appropriated that passage? I, I've had some talks with somebody. You know, I can struggle feeling that God delights in me, believing that he delights in me. Because I look in the mirror and there's way more to not delight in, in in my life than anything that is right in my life. But he delights in me, not because of works that I have done. We sang it this morning, didn't we? We sang it this morning. He delights in me because I'm in his son. I am hidden in Christ, in God, the scripture says. And so the very delight that God has in Jesus, he has in his sons and daughters. Oh, I hope that encourages your hearts today. John 6, 1 through 15, Jesus feeds the multitude. He is the bread of life. And he gives the gift of eternal life. And this is a life that will satisfy every hunger and quench every thirst. Jesus heals the blind man. He's the light of the world who gives sight to the spiritually blind so that they can see and savor, borrowing from John Piper there, and be satisfied in Jesus. John 11, Jesus raises... (laughs) Wow. I need to go see the dentist or something. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He is the son of God, the resurrection and the life. He reigns over death. He gives new life to the spiritually dead through the preaching of the gospel and spirit regeneration. And one day he's coming back to fully and finally put death to death. Oh, I'm so longing for that. I'm so longing for that. And so, so stop for a second. Where's the Lord wanting to grab your hand or tighten his grip on your hand this morning? This isn't, so that's the only thing I hesitated. I thought, oh, is it right to call this a book of evidence? But it is a book of evidence. It's almost like as, we, as you go through it, if any of you have any legal background, you're going to almost think that John was something of an attorney because he builds this case throughout the book. Why? So that we'll believe. So that we'll believe. And, and so I don't want it to stop with evidence. That's where familiarity can kick in. No, no, no. It's to be evidence that's experienced. So what, what expressions of this is Jesus wanting to take to your heart this morning? What experience of these truths about Jesus is he wanting to do in your life right now?
He's more than that. John goes on. There's another set of sevens in the book. And it's the I am statements. This is, this is reminiscent of, of, of Moses asking God, who shall I say sent me? And the answer was, I am that I am. Yahweh. He's the eternally existent, all-knowing, all-powerful, always present God. And thus, everyone is accountable to him. God's eternal existence is the greatest objective truth in all of history. And so all of this my truth, your truth stuff, there's, he is eternally objective truth. And our opinions need to be shaped by who he is and what he says. And this I am draws near to us in Jesus Christ. Amazing. That's amazing. That would be, if, if I just heard that said and nothing else, I, I would fall on my face in dread about how would I ever live up in terms of being accountable to that objective God of truth. How could I ever stand before him? The way we can stand before him is because that God comes near to us in Jesus Christ. He comes near to us. I know so many people say, I can't believe in God because there's so much suffering. Well, wait a minute. Can I maybe look at another angle here with you? Could you believe in a God who sees all the suffering that sin caused and actually sends his son into the suffering? Experiences the worst suffering of suffering on the cross to save you from it? That's a God you can believe in. Oh, here we go. So here's more evidence. But, but as we go through them, how does God want you to experience these things? What's going on in your life and your heart that this truth could be experienced truth? John 6.35, I'm the bread of life. John 8.12, I'm the light of the world. John 10.7, I'm the gate for the sheep. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John fifteen one. I am the true vine. And there's another set of sevens that Jesus just says, "I am." He doesn't put the, these these uh, explanations by him. Just there's another group of sevens. So now you start to see. You know, in, in Revelation there were so many sets of sevens. It didn't start in Revelation. It was it started in the Gospel of John. These are not just evidences, precious ones. God desires them to become our experience. God desires these evidences to be believed. Why? So that we might have life in him. Oh, it's so great. So Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the promised hope of the Old Testament. This is the one set apart by God and chosen to save his people from their sins, to deliver them from evil, to give them eternal life for the glory of God. This is the king of kings. This is the one who would crush the serpent's head and come to rule and reign. The one who would make all things right. The one who comes as a lion-hearted lamb and conquers not by military might, but through sacrificial death. Thank you, Jesus. He replaces our pitiful obedience with his perfect obedience. Don't raise your hands. Anybody get impatient today? I'll raise mine. 
Anybody, I was impatient with myself today. That's how bad it got for me today. Anybody struggle with maybe an outburst of anger? You know, isn't it awesome, guys, that he replaces our pitiful expressions of attempts at obedience and all of the disobedience we have with the fact that he was always patient and he counts that patience and credits it to us. He, he never gave in to anger. I give in to anger way too much. And Jesus says, listen, I want to credit you with my never being angry. That's what it is to be called righteous in him. Oh, what a savior. He replaces our pitiful obedience with his perfect obedience. He replaces our self-atoning efforts to cover our sins with his perfect sacrifice. That's why there's no more, it's not just no more sin debt. There's no more shame. And some of us need that today, don't we? We know we're forgiven, but there's still the shame that can hang over us, whether it's because of something I did or something that someone did to me that was sinful. Jesus is the son of God, and he's, he's speaking about more than a title like Messiah. John's talking about the son of God as it's seen in his relationship with the father, specifically in this way. John repeatedly emphasizes that Jesus is the son sent by the father. So if you go and read the book of John this week, note that 17 times Jesus said, God sent him. Six times Jesus said, the father sent me. 15 times he just speaks of being sent. God wants us to see Jesus as the sent one from the Father. The sent one is equal to God in character and dignity and divinity, but he's also submitted to God in the sense of his role and function as the Son of God to save us from our sins. So you just, this is rapid fire. God sends the Son to save us in John 3, 16 and 17. In 3, 34 and 36, he sends the Son to bring God's word to us. In 4, 34, Jesus said his food was to do the will of him who sent him. Do, this is wild, and this is hopeful for us. Doing God's will was more important than satisfying his natural appetites. We, we could give our call to prayer right there, couldn't we? Do you believe that actually can progressively happen for us? That we can know him and believe in him and trust him increasingly and increasingly want to do his will over our natural desire. That's good news. That's such good news. In chapter 5, he's the son dependent on the father. He only does what he sees the father doing. He represents the father so that if you honor the son, you honor the father. The father is with the son. This is in, in John 8. He comes with the father's authority in his message and he comes with the father's presence. I say all that because of how we're going to close today. Because it's important to know how Jesus was sent to us. And some of you are already going to, I bet you, some of you already know, oh, I know where you're going. Because what we're going to close with today is, as the Father sent me, somebody say, so I send you. So Jesus is illustrating to us the life that he can enable us to live for his glory. So the, what was the goal of all this? To believe. Now, here's a question. Did any of you ever, when you were an unbeliever, did anybody ever say, you know, just go read the book of John? Or when you were a new believer, did anybody say, 
Read the book of John. Well, now you know why, right? So let me ask you just a little question. So is this book for unbelievers? Or is it for believers? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you guys are awesome. It is both, you guys. It is both. It's to, it's to strengthen the believing of a believer, <laughs> right? And it's to bring an unbeliever to saving faith in Jesus. One gospel, one gospel saves the lost and strengthens the saved. We need to sing that. It's not we get saved and now we ditch the gospel to go on to deeper things about the Lord. No, the gospel teaches us all we need. What's that? All I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. I would say all I needed to know I learned in the gospel. I learned forgiveness in the gospel. I learned patience in the gospel. Jesus stayed on the cross in spite of all the agony my sin was calling, causing him. He stayed there. It teaches me mercy and grace. We never move on from the gospel, precious ones. The gospel, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. That's how we get in. It's the A to Z of Christianity. I wish I could give credit. I think that's Tim Keller or somebody like that. Um, okay. Well, so, but because it's also for, for the lost... I want to invite you to invite people to Sunday service like you've never invited people before. Some of you are going, where are they going to sit? That's why we're going on a prayer retreat this weekend, because we don't know. But, but listen, and not just, listen, the gospels, it can be a come and see gospel, but it's also a go and tell gospel. Take what you're learning in this great gospel of John and be the proclaimer of it everywhere you go. So there's just a sweet application. These last, last points we're going to go through very quickly. The second point is John calls us to embrace and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I've already, I've already highlighted that we're using embrace because this is an active belief. This is not an acknowledgement that I don't build my life around. This is where I build my life around this. I embrace. It's hard to do anything else when you're embracing someone, isn't it? I mean, that's what you, you're doing. Everything else revolves around that embrace. Oh, God wants us to embrace him in the truth he's given us and the son he has sent us. Um, the battle for, of sin is a battle of belief. So now let's, let's dig a little bit deeper and just care for each other's hearts. There's no one in here that doesn't have a besetting sin issue. Probably multiple all of us have, right? The fear of man that's just not gone away easy. Needing to be accepted, needing to be applauded, needing, not, knowing you're not great, but you sure wish you were, you know? <laughs> How many of us fear? We just are fearful. The, the issues of finances just haunt us. Sickness. Man, just thinking of all the things that are unfolding in this time of history in regard to sickness. Listen, the battle of besetting sin is a battle for belief. In comes the Gospel of John. Listen, when we give into temptation, what we're really doing is facing a crisis of belief. Oh, I'm so, this is where I'm just such a mess. I just wish I could have a cup of coffee with you and talk about this. 
So I'm doing it from the pulpit. It's a big cup of coffee. What, what besetting sin is long standing in your life and you have come to a place of just feeling like, I just don't know. I think I'm probably going to go to the grave with this besetting sin and I just can't see how God could have pleasure in me. Um, did you ever stop to think, wait, wait. It's not just about saying no. It's not about just trying to live better. It's believing better. That's where the battle's going to be won. And that's why we need each other. That's why we do small groups. Because we just so easily forget Jesus loves me. And we so easily hear the siren call of the world saying something besides Jesus is better. And so we push off small groups to the side because we just don't... It's not a crisis. Any temptation, especially besetting ongoing temptations, is a crisis of belief. It's a crisis of belief. When I sin, the problem is that I am that, at that time not believing that Jesus is my good, my hope, my security, the satisfaction of my life. I'm believing that maybe more money or better sex or sex outside of marriage, a better job, better education, better, better buzz from alcohol or drugs, more relaxation, more entertainment. Oh, if I could just be in control of people. <laughs> if I could have the last word. If I could be in the starting lineup, get married, have kids, be retired, be healthy, all of it, Jesus plus those things. So as a result, I give in to temptation when those things seem more available in the world than with Jesus. We so often believe that it's Jesus plus something that will make us happy or Jesus minus something. I think that doesn't get played enough. We, we hear Jesus plus, but how many of us are, man, if, if I wasn't sick, if it was Jesus minus my sickness, then I could have happiness. It's not Jesus plus or Jesus minus. Our besetting sin problems, discouragement, despair, depression, anger, bitterness, all of these things can be progressively overcome when you know and believe and trust in Jesus and experience that he is better. He's better. He's better. He's better. He's more satisfying. If anyone struggles with bitterness, bitterness is not first and foremost, by golly, I just can't forgive that person and that's why I'm bitter. Bitterness is rooted in a belief. And the belief is what that person did to me stole from me something I thought I needed to have life. And now I can never have it again unless they give it back to me. Unless they atone for what they did for me. You see, it's belief. You, the only one we need like oxygen, folks, is Jesus. I'm so sorry for how all of you have been treated here and there and especially by people who's supposed to have loved you and, and maybe by the church and all of those things. But, but they didn't take from you what you most need. You still have him. And believing that is how you make progress to overcome bitterness. Believing that. So let's pray that God will use the book of John to mature us and set us free from sin habits and, and save sinners from judgment. And why do we say that? Well, the third point, 
John promises us that in believing, we will experience life in his name. You, by believing, you may enjoy and be empowered by Jesus as your life. He gives the gift of eternal life, which, by the way, started when you first believed. It's not just the sweet by and by. It's right here and now. It starts in peace that comes now with, that we have with God. The joy of the Lord, love and grace and mercy and a purpose, which we're going to get to in a few seconds. It's knowing and trusting and loving the creator king as your father. That's life. It's being forgiven by the father through the son. That's life. It's being indwelt by the spirit of God. Oh, that's life. It's being welcomed at the throne of grace delighted in by the Father, being dearly and deeply loved by the Father through the Son and the certain hope of eternity. Say it with me. That's life. That's life. And, and again, we're going to borrow a little page from Piper's. God is most glorified in us and we're most satisfied in him. I, I'm going to take a little bit of that and say, I think God is most fully glorified when man is most fully alive in Christ. That's, that's, why, that's where belief wants to take you, to make you more and more. Now, you're alive in terms of your justification. That's, but do you know you can become more and more alive in the knowledge and joy and purpose of Jesus? And let's finish with that point. Remember how we talked about that, that John labors to say Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent. And so I said, this is a book of believing until this point. But I think this is also what it means to have life in his name. It's not just what I get, it's what I give. As the Father has sent us, so he sends us into the world. And I think this is where a lot of Christians are, are disconnecting something. I, they know that they're, they're they feel like I'm not, I'm dry. I read my Bible, I, I, I pray, but I just, there's this dryness. Are you living a sent life in the way that Jesus was sent to you? We're, we're, we're sent to mature disciples in our local church. In fact, I, I'm going to toss this out. You guys can throw something at me if you want me. I don't think you're called to come to church. I think you're sent to church. <laughs> That's why Jesus comes, right? I mean, Jesus came this morning because he's sent to love us and care for us and strengthen us and show us the Father. We don't have this, we, we've somehow lost this connectedness. He sent the Son dependent upon the Father, doing the will of the Father, speaking the word of the Father, um, reaching the lost for the Father. And now he says, part of the new life I'm giving you is you being sent. It's you being sent. We're sent to represent the Father who sent the Son so that people will be saved. To speak the Father's words, both to believer and unbeliever. To do the Father's will. To... to um, to experience dependency upon God for our strength and our vision and our purpose. Sent with the presence of the Father with us through the means of the Holy Spirit. Sent in obedience to the Father like Jesus was sent to us. So how about this? You're sent 
to minister to the people of this church. If this is your church family, you're sent to these people. Those of you who are attending and visiting us, you know, I, I hope that one of the questions you're asking, Lord, is this the place where you want me to be? That, that'll be a category. That it's, it's not just that I, I want to be well-fed, sound doctrine. We want that. I, wanna, I want there to be godly leadership in the eldership, Christ-like leadership. Okay, praise God, we're trying to be that together. Here's what our joke here is that all of us have weaknesses as elders, but we think that together we add up to one good elder. Um, so, but, but isn't, shouldn't this be a part of it? As I'm meeting the people of this church, I can see myself loving the people of this church. I'm, I hope you're experiencing the love of the people in the church. I hope you're experiencing that. But isn't that part of what it means to, to, to plug into a church? Is I'm sent to love the church that I'm going to. I'm not just an attendee. I'm a sendee. That's not right though, is it? Anyway, let's go on. <laughs> let's go on. Listen, you're sent to the next generation. You're sent to our senior saints. You're sent to a discipleship group. You're sent to your neighborhood. You're sent to the Sovereign Grace Church neighborhood. You're sent to your vocation. You're sent to your school. How about this? You're sent to your spouse. You're sent to your children. You're sent to your sports. You're sent to plant churches. You're sent to Rancho 3M or Nepal. Oh, church, let's embrace the sentness of our calling because that's where we're going to experience the greatest expression of the Holy Spirit and God's divine power and grace. I think that's why we get dry because God wants to fill you with the Spirit to do His will, not to just make you feel a little more excited or have a little more energy. Oh, He sends us. So in closing, Josh, would you come, buddy? And bring the team. So would you be praying for, as a church family, personally for sure, but praying for us as a church family that we would grow in believing and trusting and experiencing life in his name? Would you pray that we would see numbers of people, lost people being saved? Would you pray that the gospel of John would make Jesus vividly real to you and me? That's one of my prayers again about our preaching. We don't want to just be expositors and oh, how we want you to see Jesus vividly in his word and in his people that our sermons would just make Jesus so obvious, you know, that, that his voice would be heard and not just the preacher's voice, that his love would be known and experienced. Would you pray for people to be connected with the risen Christ and experience his saving presence. I guess we already said that one. Would you stand with me? And would you pray that our sermons would Sunday after Sunday cause people's hands to freshly grasp the hand that has always been holding them and yet to feel greater love in that grip than they've ever felt before. Josh, would you close us?